This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes. Following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop. And now it's time to decentralize. That's great. So what do we have on deck today, Craig? We have a topic that was set up for us by our friend Noah over at Thread, who we've had join us before. Um, Noah did uh, some work recently with Jane on the topic of demystifying and a little bit of uh, uh, debunking as it relates to thinking on diversity and decentralized trials. It's a great topic for us today. There is always a lot of um, optimism and hope and sometimes maybe what feels like hype. And I think this is an important conversation for us to dig into together. So maybe what I'll do first here is we can turn over to Noah. You can introduce yourself, um, cough if you need to, and share a little bit, Noah, on why this topic, how did this come to be as a setup for our conversation today? Hey, thanks so much, Craig. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, I, I think, I mean, I think for me, it, it really starts just with this this passion I have to see uh, the way we practice medicine end to end. Uh, really have a greater level of of equity of health equity, and so I, I would say that's like a, a sort of a driving modus operandi in in a lot of the work I do, and coming into the clinical research space, um, the the numbers are just they're just not great on the history of of sort of health equity from the beginning, and they're. There are lots of really well documented examples of how this down the line results in the inappropriate application of medicine and how it's taken us a long time to then appropriately apply medicines to different um, groups, whether it's groups as wide as women, you know, or as, as you know, more specific to um, racial or ethnic subgroups and stuff. So that kind of overarching interest um it sort of intuits that, hey, maybe technology can alleviate some of the challenges that we face uh, within the clinical trial spectrum historically in recruiting underrepresented populations. Because the numbers are, are pretty um, stark. Uh, you know, so for example, you look at most of the data and most uh, publications that have accessible data on, say, oncology trials and the recruitment of black participants. What you see is in the last two decades ranges from three to 5% total recruitment when that data is even reported. And that's compared to 13 to 14% of the population. So you're underrepresenting by like almost 300%, um, which is, is meaningful in the output of 
data on safety and efficacy then. Um, so with all of that, uh, you know, I, I said, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's look at the data around decentralization, the application of various technologies from home health to applications, to ECOAs, to telehealth, and see what's actually been published and, and, and see where we can elevate this conversation, not based on a hypothetical that technology may make things more accessible, but really based on um, what are the data actually telling us about inclusion and accessibility, both the very specific inclusion of diverse populations, racial and ethnic diversity, you see the FDA concerned with, but also with the broader question of inclusion across things like socioeconomic status and geography. So, I mean, that, that was kind of the motivation behind um, spending a bunch of time <laughs> write, writing a peer-reviewed paper versus just <laughs> talking about it. It'll be interesting that, you know, it's interesting you mentioned as far as even just uh, um, uh, sex and gender in an enrollment, because it feels like so much of that gap we have been able to address as a community over the last decade. Um, and so are there actual learnings from that process of of making improvement happen that we are now able to extend to other areas. Um, Jane, it is fabulous to have you here. Congratulations on getting connected successfully to Clubhouse. Um, please introduce yourself for our audience. I don't think many have necessarily met you before. It'll be great to learn a bit more about your work in the field. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I appreciate coming to the Clubhouse today. So I am uh, Dr. Jane Morgan. I am the executive director of the COVID task force for the Piedmont healthcare system in the state of Georgia. It's the largest healthcare system in the state of Georgia. I am a formally trained uh, cardiologist and clinical trialist and have spent really the majority of my career now uh, developing clinical trials, research uh, in both industry and in the private sector. So uh, came out of Solve Pharmaceuticals and uh, Abbott, which is now AbV, uh, in their R&D research and development programs, uh, leading global clinical trial programs, and then also uh, some business development and medical affairs as well, meaning um, how do you in license other compounds and bring them into your program and begin to enroll people into trials. And then at Piedmont, I came to Piedmont really to lead their cardiovascular research program and to, ex to expand that program in many ways to uh, diversify and decentralize it. Um, and part of that step included, uh, Piedmont has 19 hospitals, uh, but we were doing uh, research only at one, the flagship hospital uh, in the city of Atlanta. And so we expanded research to some of our other community hospitals, and that was sort of the first step. Um, and then COVID hit, right? And this is what we've been doing for the last two years. But uh, I'm still very steeped in uh, clinical trials and certainly in the health equity space as well. And Shane, how did you um, get involved in or intersect with this whole decentralized trial space and the use of some technologies, tools, processes to try to serve as a, as a vehicle for improving access? You know, ahead of even uh, considering technology, um, when I years ago was considering decentralization, I really just considered moving it into areas where we could reach other people, people who didn't have access to large medical systems, uh, people whose doctors were really community doctors and also were not connected uh, to large health systems. And how could we do that? 
Um, I think technology, certainly with artificial intelligence, began to kind of roar onto the scene and we began to see what some of those capabilities were. But, you know, quite frankly, the pharmaceutical and uh, device companies were lagging. Uh, they were very slow to adapt um, any digitalization, really, of clinical trials. And, you know, if there is an upside to COVID and there's uh, many lessons to be learned, really, in this whole COVID pandemic, is that we <clears throat> rapidly uh, embraced technology and telehealth and things that had been sitting on the shelf for years languishing because they were too difficult to implement and too onerous. And we weren't sure if, if there was going to be practical application uh, suddenly became available to us in 30 or 60 days. It was all hands on deck. And at this point, really, there is not going to be a return uh, to that normalcy. And, and I agree with that. And so COVID has certainly helped to push the technological advancement um, in clinical trials and our conversation about how do we include more populations into these clinical trials such that we can begin to more greatly incorporate the voice of the patient, integrating technologies and selecting what is the optimal delivery strategy for the patient. Clinical trials are developed in structure for the corporations. What's easiest for them? What may, what, how do they manage their infrastructure and their operations? And what we're saying is we need to create these trials such that they fit the patient and the patient's lifestyle such that we know that all drugs and devices and vaccines, as we can see, that go to the FDA for authorization or approval are relevant to all populations and all populations can have confidence in the decisions of the FDA that this data was relevant to them. Jane, given um, that, that diverse background of yours that spanned uh, industry and academia and working so much in the community today, which stakeholder do you think is going to be the, 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 the force that's pushing and sustaining change um, in, in, in areas like this? Because we could easily slip backwards into a familiar comfort zone. Uh, across all the different stakeholders you're engaging, who's the one that's going to be really pushing us to, to keep keep making progress here? And so I think it's going to be um, a divergence. It will be from the very top and it will be from the very bottom. And when I say the bottom, you know, I, I don't mean of sort of the, the social strata. I mean, um, from the patient, so from stem to stern, the patients themselves beginning to understand and demanding a higher level of health care and um, refusing to accept to allow America to continue to do business as usual in how they develop drugs. So, for example, we look at oncology trials or cancer trials. These are the only trials that have been shown to increase the rate of remission of cancer. The trial itself, not the approved compound, just by participating in the trial, you increase the rate of remission of your cancer. I mean, what is that worth to you? What is another two weeks of your life worth? What is another four weeks of your mother's life? What is another six months of your child's life? What is that worth to you? And yet we see cancers where blacks have uh, a larger preponderance, like certain types of breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer. We're not enrolling 
in those trials where the trials themselves improved your health, let alone the data that then is uh, sent to the FDA for approval doesn't have representative numbers in them, especially of the people who primarily are impacted by these cancers. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about maximal health care. If you have a chronic health condition, hypertension, diabetes, cancer, whatever it is, and you're not being offered a clinical trial by your physician, you're being treated optimally. I've often said this to the absolute top of evidence-based medicine, but you're not being treated maximally. Maximally is access to tomorrow's therapies today. And that has been out of reach for many minority populations. That's why the majority of people enrolling in trial are white <clears throat> and the majority of principal investigators, which means the lead doctors for these trials are called principal investigators, 99% are white. And we know that 80% of African-Americans are seen by African-American physicians. We also know that the number one reason that people enroll in trials is that they are approached by a trusted doctor. If 80% of blacks are seen by black physicians and 99% of principal investigators leading the trials are white, then you can begin to see even where that disconnect is. And so we have many layers and that's why I say it has to start at the top and also at the bottom. At the top, the CEOs and heads of these hospitals and corporations, but also at the bottom, meaning the patient, and I don't want to use the word bottom because it makes it seem as if maybe they're not important. So I would just say from stem to stern, when we look at the entire um, ecosystem, the patient also has to begin to ask questions and push the system and demand a better healthcare um, experience. Thanks so much, Jane. Noah, I dropped a link at the top of the screen to the um, to the opinion piece that was dropped uh, by the, you and Jane, along with our friend John uh, over at Thread and other great names like Paul Wicks, a piece that's in uh, in Nature Digital Medicine from, uh, I think we just did this in the last couple of weeks. Oh, wait, take that back. Cinco de Mayo, published on May 5th. So people can see that link at the uh, top third of your screen on your Clubhouse app. It'll take you right there. Noah, I'm wondering, can, can you help folks give a, give a bit of a synopsis on what was the perspective that you were looking to communicate? What is, the, what is their takeaway from, uh, from this opinion piece? Uh, thanks, thanks, Kirk. Yeah, I, I just want to I just want to shout out to um, just just emphasize, you know, what Jane said too, because I think it's it's so important seeing seeing the range of impact of 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 trial applications and and how much this matters. And so I just I really appreciate the work uh, you're doing, Jane. So it's always fun to get to collaborate with you on these things. Um, the, the 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 piece. <laughs> thanks I so have, much. That's so funny. <laughs> um, the, the 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 piece really has um. I guess two um, two thesis. Um, the first is that, um, which is really basic, is just that people are more than the sum of their parts. And if we don't apply an intersectional lens to how we think about recruitment and engagement, we're likely to um, not be as successful as we could otherwise in our approach to um, sort of broad recruitment strategies. And so when you take an intersectional framework, you can you can see people as not just 
not just 65, not just a woman, not just black, but that that experience defines many other things about that person's life. And they will then interact with healthcare in different ways as a result. And so you need intersectional solutions and technology as a fundamentally intersectional solution has opportunities to speak to that. So that's kind of like thesis number one. But I think the other piece that to me is, is really important is that the actual data findings of trials that have leveraged decentralized methodologies are not always intuitive with our assumptions about how people interact with technologies. So you have very normal things where you have certain trials where you you see, hey, when we use lots of technology, um, we get more people who are younger and higher educated. So there are instances where that sort of intuitive idea is is true, um, but you might say get more uh, racial and ethnic diverse representation, but they might be younger and higher educated. But we see other applications where, hey, we we leveraged video in our uh, consenting process. And, and we did that across 8,000 participants and um, on this massive trial. And the sites that leveraged video in their consenting process actually saw more, a statistically significant increase in participants over 75 and participants from lower socioeconomic status and participants of non-white groups. And so it's not always the case that sort of digital applications have sort of one obvious output. And so considerations of, to, to me, I think it's that, hey, the way we put the technologies we choose to apply and the way we piece those technologies together into this um, and apply them in the system that is a clinical trial are going to have meaningful implications on the output, not just DC. It, so it's not as simple as uh, DCTs increase diver diversity and inclusion or DCTs only help, you know, young people or, 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 or whatever kind of like top line assumptions we might walk into the room with. Amir, your uh, your thoughts and perspective, hearing about some of Jane's work and some of the uh, the backstory on the opinion piece in Nature that uh, Noah, Jane, and the team put together. Uh, Amir, uh, did you have any uh, thoughts, questions? Yeah, I do. Sorry, um, my mute button didn't seem to want to respond. Uh, thank you. So, I actually want to, before I ask that, just want to ask Jane a question around what, what something she said. So, you asked Jane, you know, what's going to be really forcing change? And I think her response was, you know, patients will not put up with it. So, I, I just want to dig into that a bit more and sort of think about what does that actually mean? Uh, I mean, look, patients have been fed up with the healthcare system for <laughs> ever, and I'm not seeing much change happen. So is it really real that patients can do that? And how would they do that? What's your view on that, Jane? I know we have some patients in the room we can ask later in the second half, but I'm curious to know, it's okay to, it's fine to say that, but what does that mean? How can patients change the system? So when we look at the uh, pharmaceutical companies specifically, and, and maybe this is a, a time that we don't even remember because we've been so socialized, but it really wasn't that long ago that you absolutely never saw advertisements of prescription drugs on television. You learn about prescription drugs in an interaction with your physician in the office or in the hospital. But that changed and the laws changed and the pharmaceutical companies were able to go directly to the consumer. So what does that mean when we see direct to consumer advertising and then we combine that with the capability of the internet? What we saw was a major shift in the doctor patient 
interaction as patients came into the doctor's office requesting what they wanted for their disease entity, as opposed to waiting for a recommendation. The research had already been done. They had been on the internet, they had seen the commercials, and they simply were coming into the doctor's office to get the prescription. They already knew what they wanted. So a lot of that is information and also misinformation, right? Because advertising can be um, very uh, subliminal and um, all of the medical information isn't available. The other thing that is a big shift in the doctor-patient relationship is that people have done a lot of uh, research on whatever their disease entity was or what they thought and already had either a lot of questions for the doctor or had already developed what their treatment plan was going to be and simply uh, wanted the doctor to sort of uh, rubber stamp it. And so we started to see this shift where consumers started to uh, more actively engage in their interactions with their physicians. And that's what I'm saying with regard to clinical trials as well. The patients, if they begin to ask for it, if they begin to request it, if they begin to demand it, you start to see a shift in that relationship. And physicians also saying, wait a second, I keep hearing about clinical trials. Now my patients are asking, how many times am I going to say, I don't know and I don't have that information. I better find that information and make certain that I'm absolutely giving the best care to my patient. That's what I'm talking about. That's great. I really appreciate that. You know, uh, of course, one can argue whether direct consumer advertising for prescription drugs is a good thing or not. But uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> I think that uh, you know what you're pointing out is also, I think, maybe even a generational shift in that. You know, if younger people really will not put up with the antiquated technology that we use, etc., and just don't engage, then companies will have to really understand if they want to recruit. They really need to think differently. I'm certainly dealing, honestly, with quite a few uh, sponsor companies at the moment who are still stuck in the past when they're not realizing that it's a very competitive environment for patients wanting to choose what trial to go into. And if they're not patient and site friendly, they're really not competitive. So I think uh, I appreciate that, that, that there is hope that you know patients demanding and asking will make a change. So thank you. Oh, sure. Absolutely. So, Craig, do you want to um, start uh, wrapping up the half an hour and uh, maybe we can start inviting us to some really great people in the room that can join the conversation with us as well? Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, for folks that are just joining us, you have landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. We do gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, and talk about a range of topics uh, related to uh, planning, executing, successfully decentralized clinical trials and enabling research to be more accessible for all. If you have a topic that you'd like to see us cover in future weeks, just raise your hand. Let Amir and I know. Send an email, a text, a message through Clubhouse, LinkedIn, Twitter, or otherwise. That's how these topics come to be, and that's how we have uh, fabulous voices like Jane and Noah here with us today. Uh, so keep these contacts, uh, keep these topic ideas coming forward, and we'll keep uh, keep these gatherings happening together. Um, by the way, I, as we see a few folks coming up on the stage, we'll, uh, and by the way, uh, you'll see at the bottom of your screen uh, an icon to raise your hand. If you have a question, an idea, perspective you'd like to bring into today's conversation, 
go ahead and hit that and we'll pull you up here on the stage. Um, there is some great complimentary work happening out there, I should mention. Um, uh, Jane Miles, I know, is on stage, and, and maybe we'll set this up a bit for when, uh, when Jane is uh, next with the mic. But uh, we have some great opportunities through DTRA, the Decentralized Trials Research Alliance, to gather the evidence of what's working in decentralized research to help us to amplify success, to create better informed educational material for all of our stakeholders. Um, so if there is good evidence out there, now is the time for us to engage and share. Um, let's open up the mic and I see our friend Shalon is here with us. Shalon, welcome. Please introduce yourself for folks that uh, may not have yet met and share your question or idea today. Absolutely. Thank you, Craig. So this was a, a really wonderful, wonderful conversation, uh, Noah and Jane. I, I lived through the COVID closures as a oncology principal investigator at a traditional brick and mortar academic site um, and, and kind of hearing the themes that you're talking about in terms of clinical trial access and not just thinking about diversity and inclusion as being a problem that we can solve with digital tools, but but really it starts from um, how to define the inclusion criteria for the studies, who are the people who are designing the studies, who are leading the studies, presenting the studies to our patients, who are our, what do our uh, coordinators um, um, look and sound like when our patients are being approached for those clinical trials. So um, I think the paper that you guys worked on is is a very important sign or, or sort of a cautionary note to people to realize that just a digital tool or certain aspects aren't going to necessarily address all of the pervasive um, uh, issues that plague clinical trials and, and drug development. Um, I hope, Jane, to the point that you made that we can move away from decentralizing clinical trials at a, by, at a protocol level and instead think about decentralizing tools at the patient's level, because we know that um, the acceptability of decentralized tools, at-home visits, um, digital tools may vary based on cultures, based on regions, based on age, and it'll be very presumptuous of, of investigators and sponsors and, and sites to think that we know how all our patients are going to want to uh, deploy these tools. I can already think of many folks who may be skeptical or, or, or just not comfortable with uh, healthcare professionals visiting them at home or some generational differences in how they accept um, the, 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 the tools and we could inadvertently um, exacerbate existing disparities. Um, and I'll, I'll wrap up by just highlighting two studies that were presented at ASCO a couple of weeks ago. One study looked at the adoption of telemedicine in across cancer centers and found that the adoption of telemedicine during COVID um, was was not equal across all populations and, and black and Hispanic patients were less likely to have engaged in telemedicine services. Now, was that because they were not accepting of telemedicine services and they really preferred the in-person visit? Or was it due to technical differences or was it uh, some biases in who was offered? 
telemedicine to begin with, you know, we have to figure it out. But here we have a simple tool, relatively simple, uh, which could not be deployed um, in an equitable manner across the entire population. On a more positive note, there was a study presented, a breast cancer study that was presented at ASCO um, this year, which was a decentralized trial um, using telemedicine and home health nurses administering the cancer medication at home. And we're thankful that in that study, we found when given a choice, 90 plus percent of early breast cancer patients opted to get their medicine at home the rates were lower for breast can for metastatic breast cancer folks. Um, it was about 66%. Um, but the representation seen on that study was was something which I think in terms of data is 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 probably the most uh, mature data that we have in oncology it was about 30% of patients were black, Hispanic, or Asian on, on that trial. So at least the early studies that are coming up seem to be uh, positive, but but again, to Noah's point and Jane's point, we can't just assume that these tools are going to automatically equate to um, to diversity. So wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thanks for bringing that up. And and uh, you know you make a great point. This is uh, Jane Morgan, in that um, we didn't really discuss it, but the protocol is actually very important. And the time to begin to engage is at the beginning and not wait until you get to a phase three of your trial or uh, after uh, FDA approval and you're trying to expand indication. The time to have thoughtful deliberation is when you are developing your clinical study outline and then later your protocol such that all of these things have been carefully considered and certainly if you're working on study site selections, et cetera, all of that is a part of the protocol. So you are anticipating the populations that you want to be in your trial and you have designed a protocol that is going to facilitate the ease of uh, attracting those populations and engaging them. So that's very important. The second thing that I think is important um, that you that you just um, touched on is that many patients don't want physicians to come to their homes, maybe. But, you know, the other part of decentralizing trials is not necessarily for physicians or other healthcare personnel to come to your home, but for the trials to move out to the community doctor's offices where patients are being seen and they can then go a couple of miles to their doctor's office as opposed to driving all the way to the city or whatever their transportation issue may be. And so that gets back to when I when we talk about stem to stern that we've got to see the pharma companies, the device companies recruit and educate black physicians on becoming principal investigators. And that begins in medical school where we get absolutely no training nor exposure to research and clinical trials. It is not a part of the medical curriculum. It's something that you can pursue <clears throat> on your own and learn on your own, but it is not a part of the medical curriculum. And I'm starting to see that change. I am one of the people pushing to have this included in the medical curriculum. Um, but again, if you leave, you come out of uh, uh, a specific culture, you come to medical school, you learn all of the academics and you train and you go back to serve into your community, there's never been a touch point of clinical trials. 
And so that's another missed opportunity there where the physicians are not bringing it to their patients. And so the community doctor's offices are very important. And then the last thing that I would say is, you know, the advent of telehealth during COVID, you know, absolutely was a boom, a boom uh, to some patients and uh, not so much to others. But, you know, aside from race, one of the things that was concerning um, were the misdiagnoses with telehealth. There still doesn't seem to be a, any substitution for an in-person visual inspection and physical exam. And so the patients can minimize symptoms or uh, minimize physical uh, findings or not be aware of them. And since the patient, the physician is not actually touching the patient and palpating the patients, there are things that have gone missed. And we certainly are very concerned with regard to what we're going to see in the oncology or cancer world in the next six months to one year from misdiagnoses because we saw that doctor's appointments were down, radiologic screenings were down, um, uh, cancer screenings have all uh, been down, and we're wondering what that's going to portend on the other side. So great comments. Uh, can, can I jump in here? I want to I want to like highlight two kind of macro trends and then kind of get some of the other speakers here feedback on this because I, I do think I want to highlight there are two big trends that are going to inexorably drive towards solutions. Now the solutions, what those are, I think as Jane is so aptly putting it, are going to be multifaceted because it's a multifaceted problem. But the the trends are number one, you, you look at the numbers and you see like, okay, in the next, you, right now with trial starts, we need 1.1 million participants for oncology trials to meet the current demand globally finding those and finding those in areas where oftentimes we're looking at niche and rare oncologies because of the biotech movement in that space that are oftentimes overlapping between different organizations, drivers, just finding enough participants is to meet the scientific need. And then ultimately for organizations, their structural and fiscal need is going to be a huge challenge. On On the flip side, you have, you have regulators making moves in this direction so obviously on april 13th the fda comes out with draft guidance that says hey we want you to have a diversity and inclusion plan for ethnic and racial inclusion as part of your late stage clinical trials and but but sort of doubling down on that just just last week the house passed a bipartisan bill which basically just is a, a very standard bill to renew the fda's ability to collect all the fees they do with for approvals but in that bill in sections 501 through 505 is a specific provision that says, hey, in your late phase medical device or uh, late phase clinical trials, with reasonable exceptions for certain conditions, we're going to sort of expect you to have a diversity and inclusion plan. So it is moving from just a draft guidance to a bill that still hasn't been pushed through the Senate and signed fully into law. But my point is that there are going to be major drivers that push for requirements to to find meaningful solutions that work um, and i'd love any feedback from other other speakers especially shalon or, or whoever on that well it is exciting the the policy that we're seeing whether the diverse trials act the depict act um, even elements of curious 2.0 it's fascinating that some of these uh proposed pieces of legislation that have bipartisan support in the u.s 
um, that are focused on diversity in trials are specifically calling out decentralized and the importance of democratizing and making sure that these tools are, are, are widely accessible. Um, but I'll be uh, curious from uh, others. It sounded like Noah was tagging Shalin. Shalin, do you have a perspective on some of the policy or other pressures? No, I think it's amazing that the, that the pressure is coming from the regulatory agencies. My worry is that sponsors may just cite decentralized tools as their action plan. And we know that it's not just the tool that will equal diversity and there's the team approach and there's a lot of thought that goes around those aspects. So I hope that it doesn't get lost in translation that, um, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to enable decentralized tools and allow them to, uh, to lead to better representation on clinical trials. Has done. It has not specifically identified uh, decentralized tools, and it has not provided any um, guidance on on how you should reach uh, your endpoint. But it's it has certainly it is making recommendations on what the FDA would like to see in uh, population pools within trials, certainly within large trials. And I think this is very similar to what we saw. 15 years or so ago, where the FDA started by making um, guidance and suggestions regarding what they want to see with, with regard to the number of Americans in trials. You know, it was not that long ago uh, that we enrolled in trials and a large proportion of uh, participants in the trial were outside of the United States. Most of that was because um, of uh, a a lesser, or shall we say, a, an easier, maybe, regulatory climate to facilitate. And certainly in Eastern Europe, it was much easier to enroll patients. You could enroll very quickly, reach your cap. We we're always concerned about your patent expiration, um, how quickly you could get database lock. And, and finally, the United States said, look, if you're going to be developing drugs that are going to be used on United States citizens, then we have to see a certain percentage of US citizens in this trial. And they began, just as they're doing now with the, with the diversity, with some suggestions. But then later, as time went on, they, they became much uh, clearer and more strident in their language. And so I see this as a run-in, very similar to um, let's stop all of uh, the Eastern European enrollment and let's have Americans in these trials because Americans are going to be the ones uh, that are going to be prescribed this. This is the FDA. Our jurisdiction is over the United States of America. So we want to see American participation in the trials. I, I see that the ball is rolling in that same direction and pharmaceutical and device companies should take notice. And I think that they are. And the FDA is not saying how you do it, but they're saying, here's what we are going to suggest. So read between the lines. If you want to get approval, here is what we would like to see. And I think it's been a, a softball that's being lobbed, but I think the, the industry is taking note of what that means. It is a bit of a softball. And in part, it's a softball because that's all the FDA can do is issue guidance on a topic like this, I think to do more. The FDA needs legislation, and that is where some of the pieces of legislation start to creep in. The Diverse Trials Act 
is the one that calls out decentralized and issuing guidance. The DePict Act, I think, is the one that goes a bit farther and starts to do what really drives change in our ecosystem, create carrots and sticks. It's incentives that drive change. That's how we have a robust rare disease infrastructure today is in large part because we fixed some of the misaligned incentives and, and made it a process of carrots and sticks. Maybe we need to see more of that here. I want to get more voices in this conversation. We have some other fabulous people here in the room. The other Jane, Jane Miles, her friend, please come on off mute, introduce yourself, share your uh, perspective on today's topic. Thank you, Craig and Amir and Noah, Jane. Great to hear you out there. Um, thanks for raising the topic. So first I have an ask, and that is that if you do have evidence impact or even things that are not working so well please share them with initiative team 3a if you need a connection i will make that happen for you um, this is in the dtra space where they are trying to generate evidence of impact so that we know what's working what's not working the way we had hoped so far second point I have been able to execute DCT trials and see a shift in the diversity. I will say, and I think this is fair, it was not planned. It was serendipitous. It is a really profoundly exciting signal, and I want to now start to plan for it more prospectively so we can measure what did we think would happen, what actually happened. Question. The Amir, is it just me or is are we losing Jane there? You're breaking up really badly, so it's hard to understand you, sadly. Oh, okay. We did get the first part around initiative teams. Try it again, and if we strike out, drop it in the chat, and we'll 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 do the voiceover for you. Sure. What would you advise the study team to do as they're developing their plan so it's more than a checkbox activity? Well, we got that time. Uh, Noah, Jane, any takers on some advice for study teams as they're developing their plans around diversity to keep it fresh, keep it uh, from being a checkbox? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things we have to focus on as well, and that the study team can actually focus on, um, is cultural congruence. And so making certain that you have people who are working on your team where where you've got populations of color where they can look and see people who reflect themselves that provides a, a degree of comfort and that can also speak their language and when i say language i mean not i don't mean all of the languages of the world i mean relate to them in a culturally relevant way and provide some ease and some comfort the other things that we can do is uh, begin to insist that there is leadership in research and that there are, is something other than white men leading research programs, having a seat at the table, somebody who uh, is reflecting the entire system 
um, and has a lens on the entire system and a sensitivity of the entire system and also has a voice at the table to really inform decisions. And so it's important to have that diverse team because these are going to be kind of your frontline uh, um, your frontline contact people. This is actually who the patients physically see, whether it's a telehealth visit or in person. And so those are steps you can start to take to make certain that you can build, what am I talking about? Trust in your system, trust in the process and, and developing those relationships. Yeah, I, I love that, Jane. I, I think from my side, as as a white man, or as just like another white man in this different <laughs> often, so funny. I, I think the thing I, I try I try to point for is 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 often, hey, let's go ask some people who can matter. I'm thinking right now of a little consulting I did for a study that was for a Native American population that they really wanted to use uh, DCT elements. I said, look, here's here's a bunch of solutions from a pragmatic design logistics perspective. I can tell you these will work well. What you, but what we need to do is we need to go talk to leaders and we need to go talk to people in these communities. We need to identify how they're going to perceive this. And we need to get feedback on if, if these communities are interested in participation. And if so, how we can respectfully present as a major pharmaceutical company to a historically wildly mistreated population, uh, the value proposition here. And, and and get that feedback before we go forward. And I think that that, that advocacy to listen and pushing and, and providing strategies whereby that can be done is at least one of the ways I try to do something helpful. <laughs> so uh, this is Amir. I'll, I'll just try and uh, give a different answer to Jane. I think the answers you got already are very helpful. Um, you know, sadly, at the end of the day, many things happen because of incentives. So I'm sure all of us have experienced clinical operations teams that have done all the wrong things because their incentives were misaligned, right? I've seen clinical ops teams think a study was successful despite actually being a failed study because it met timelines. As far as they were concerned, that was a success because their incentives were the timelines. So I guess till we have incentives in place as well where there's actually consequences for not doing anything apart from checking the box, uh, I think that's gonna be still a challenge. That'll be my answer to you, Jay Mills. There's a, a great follow-on from Jane in the chat if folks are interested around should we be setting specific recruitment targets for specific diverse communities and patient populations, um, and should that be documented in the plan, Jane? Yeah, absolutely. It should be documented in the plan, and that's exactly what I mean when you have thoughtful consideration when you are designing and developing your protocol. At a minimum, your trial should reflect the percentage of the population in that area or whatever that community is. When I say community, I mean the United States of, the, of America or the, the state of whatever, Wyoming. Um, the other thing to think about and to give careful consideration where you deviate from this is when you're looking at orphan populations or very nuanced populations then those populations can certainly be skewed because of certain maybe genetic factors or inherent factors that create this population of people. And so again, you, de you, don't, you want to develop your protocol to represent 
than the percentage of people that are reflected by that particular disease entity. And that can be skewed. If you have a very specific, narrow uh, type of uh, disease process that you're studying and 85% of the people who suffer from this disease are Japanese, and 10% are white and 5% are black, then you probably should align your, your protocol to represent that. It will not make sense to develop that trial with the actual population of Japanese people in the United States, because that would be a low percentage, and yet you're targeting a disease that impacts 85%, that 85% are impacted by Japanese. And so it requires careful thought and careful consideration, including pediatric trials, the pediatric population and the makeup of the pediatric population here in the United States. When I say pediatrics, I mean 12 and under, is very different than the population that's 65 and older. And so you have to understand what is your target, what is your, um, what is your indication, and then give thoughtful, thoughtful consideration to your protocol development and and this particular segment of people and what it's going to look like and what it will entail and there will be many different ways to skin a cat and it requires some creativity we need to think out of the box right but it's not going to be one size fits all let's get jonathan salazar into this conversation jonathan come on off mute introduce yourself Hey everyone, Jonathan Salazar. Um, I, it's actually interesting because I guess I get I bring a, a not a different perspective, but I, I add to the perspective that I'm actually involved in really identifying sites um, for the the company that I work with, and this has been a, a very huge thing that we've really been diving into for I think now over two years. Um, there's been teams created to really try and understand the issues, the problems, the barriers within the, the whole field. Um, and I think this FDA diversity plan um, guidance has also um, created quite a stir, I think, among sponsors as well, and trying to really figure out how they're going to be able to meet the sort of new guidance. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of the initial conversation was, I think, very easily, like um, I think Shalon said, is just like, how do we just check the box and you know say we've completed this and we're on our way. but. I think we, we've really started pushing um, how do we go beyond that and, and how do we really find um, and target these historically um, uh, misrepresented or underrepresented groups. Um, and so I guess the, you know, the first thing that, that I really caught my, my, my ear was the, the, the regard with telemedicine and how you know, that can seem like, okay, we're, we're giving access for people that don't necessarily have to be at sites, but then we also have to um, challenge the assumption that everyone has access to telemedicine, especially in um, low socioeconomic groups or even in, in um, rural areas where there may not be that type of bandwidth um, and infrastructure set up. So I think something that's really come up in a lot of discussions is the inclusion of, or the challenge also of, of, of clinical sites and whether they have to be um, sort of stuck in where they are, meaning why not have a clinical site that's able to move, that is mobile, that, that's able to go to the patient instead of it just, you know, um, home health was also mentioned. So that's something that's definitely been implemented in a lot of clinical trials. I think in the, in the last few years, um, really helping to um, provide the medicines, maybe take some of the general um, uh, labs and such. But I think it, it goes beyond that. So maybe 
being able to have a whole site that is mobile going to a lot of these rural areas or areas that historically have not been targeted for um, clinical trials. Um, and then moving on from there with, with protocol, I think it's, it's very important to really in ensure that these protocols are adaptive. And even through the phase one, I think it's important to make sure that that we target several different population groups and then really figure out if there is a notable difference whether regard to their biomarker, their PKs or anything like that, because then that should ensure that when you're developing future phase two, phase three trials, that you're ensuring that you're adding that into your inclusion inclusion criteria, that you're um, making sure it's still adaptive so that you can respond to any, any sort of signals and markers that you're identifying either within groups, within, um, and maybe even beyond that, maybe there's a difference outside of sort of um, the racial group, maybe there's a difference between um, sexes as well. So I think it's very important to keep that very adaptive and that the, the study teams that are developing these protocols keep that in mind um, to ensure that we, again, are able to not only target these underrepresented groups, but then are able to accommodate signals that we're identifying medically. Um, and I think um, something, uh, else that I think has been really important for me in terms of targeting sites is, um, like Jane was saying, th there's such a big number of, of patients that choose to see doctors that represent them. Either they are Black, they're Hispanic, they're Native American. And I think it's very easy for sponsors to target huge institutions that historically have been made up of, um, of white men, white women. Um, and that just by chance of them being large institutions are, you know, are um, given or not given, um, what's the word, I guess, um, you know, patients tend to be referred to them. Um, and then, you know, that's how we historically maybe try to access that diverse population. But I think definitely um, something that I've been really focused on is really identifying investigators that are of color um, in, in different areas, whether it's rural, um, urban, um, in different um, areas that maybe we don't historically target. And, and, and then also, I think, pushing sponsors to have the charge of training investigators um, to, or, you know, uh, training medical professionals, not investigators, to become investigators. Because I think Jane was right. There's so many uh, individuals that want and have interest, but unless they're able to get in the door, unless they have that experience, unless they know someone to be able to explain to them sort of the ins and outs, the the responsibilities, I think it's very hard to, to, to get those investig uh, individuals to become investigators. Um, and then, of course, if they don't have PI, direct PI experience, sometimes a lot of uh, sponsors, you know, are, are hesitant to choose those investigators because they don't have PI experience. So I think there's a, a lot of things to, to keep in mind. And um, very excited sort of where this conversation is going to keep going and what we're going to see from different sponsors and uh, groups. Jonathan, you set up 101 topics for us for the rest of the year for Clubhouse. I love <laughs> it. Um, from mobile and beyond with uh, mobile sites. And I, I think that's going to be a great one for us to dig into in the coming weeks. Some of the realities, some of the strategies that can make that work and maybe some of the strategies that can make it terrifying and only exacerbate division and perception of uh, of people in white vans coming and snatching kids off the street to be in research? How do we make sure if we're rolling into a community with a mobile unit, it's it's done in a way that's uh, that has a lasting positive 
um, uh, impact in the community. I want to make sure we get to Archana, though, as well, before I let anyone else react. Archana, come off mute. Can you share in just a minute or two with us today? Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing me to the stage and, and what an incredible topic. Thank you, everybody. Sorry, I missed the first half hour due to a conflict, but I'll be sure to check the recording later on. I wanted to add um, to the discussion points and the wonderful points raised by Jonathan and Jane, um, both Janes, uh, Noah, Shalon. I I feel like um, I remember when the diversity um, uh, depict act discussions when it, it came out around April time. I remember being in a meeting. I think it was the American Cancer Society um, Cancer Action Network uh, advisory role meeting that I was attending. And I there were members from the FDA in that room presenting this new guidance uh, draft. And I, I actually recall asking them um, if uh, there was still an opportunity for them to include other diversities like LGBTQ, race, etc., that Shalan you mentioned in the in the chat, as well, the fact that DCT was not called out, um, and they kind of went, wanted us to read between the lines, and I could um, definitely sense that that's something that they were being very cautious about because they wanted to leave it up to the sponsors to um, utilize a whole host of different capabilities and methodologies to to show to the FDA what their diversity plan is. And um, as Jane said um, uh, earlier, uh, that they, they did not want to just call out DCT. But Shalan, your point made earlier is very valid that we don't want DCT to be, okay, sponsors doing, oh yeah, we deployed DCT and that's um, completely you know not a good justification. How did you deploy that DCT? What tools did you use to bring that diversity in that population? That explanation, I hope the FDA will ask for that explanation further when, as opposed to just being thrown the word DCT towards them, hey, yeah, this is my diversity plan. DCT is my diversity plan. I hope that due diligence will, will happen. But I think we have run out of time here, but um, um, I, I just wanted to call out those couple of things where I think there is an opportunity for the FDA to go a little bit more bolder on this. Thank you. Thanks so much, Archana. Thank you so much to Noah for queuing up this topic and bringing Jane into the conversation, building on that uh, important piece in, uh, in nature digital medicine. Shalon, Jane, Jonathan, Archana. Thank you as well for jumping on stage and contributing such important perspective. If you're going to be at the DIA meeting next week, keep the conversation going on Tuesday uh, at The View. We look forward to seeing you there. Um, we will be back here next week on Friday the 24th. Uh, we will be with Alex from Vault, Julie and Kim Hawkins from uh, Sanofi doing a little bit of myth busting on decentralized trials. So, uh, Amir, any other final closing thoughts? Wishing everyone a great weekend and really enjoy the conversation. Thank you for our excellent speakers who came and those who volunteered to come up. Thank you. Very much appreciated all. Stay well.